Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests will be Ann Fletcher, who is the author of Sober for Good, and Scott Elting, who is from Drager Diagnostics, who will talk about the breathalyzer ignition interlock. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest, uh, Ann Fletcher, is right here. She's on the line, and we're going to bring her on. Ann, how are you doing this evening? Good evening. Good to be with you. Good to have you. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Okay. Uh, we're going to be talking tonight about your book, Sober Sober for Good, which I read several years ago. And, you know, I've been uh, kind of flipping through it a little bit again to uh, remind me of some things. I noticed that you have a chapter here where you talk about that uh, not everybody has to hit bottom. You don't have to hit bottom how the masters reached the turning point. And I'm going to start on that chapter and cuz I, you know, I think a lot of people, I was just writing an article about this today. That's why it caught my eye and I think a lot of people they don't hit bottom. They they find their turning point another way rather than having a traumatic experience. And what did you find when you were researching your book about this topic? Well, there's so many myths about addiction and recovery and that's one of the one of the things that I love to do in my books is is tackle the the many myths um uh about whatever topic that I'm handling and um let me just back up and tell our listeners that um I went out and interviewed more than 200 people who had at least 5 years of sobriety and they had done it in many different ways um, and sobriety did include some people who had resolved their drinking problems. Everybody had a serious drinking problem, and most of them had achieved sobriety with abstinence, but I did have a handful of people who had achieved that with uh, a moderate drinking goal. Um, but anyway, um, what I did was send each of them a seven-page questionnaire um, and also interviewed them and looked at the common threads and how these people who had recovered in many different ways um, looked at the common threads and how they resolved their drinking problems. And there's very little research that's been done in people who have long-term sobriety. And 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 to, again, sobriety to me is having been on my definition of sobriety isn't just abstinence. It's the length of time somebody has been on top of their drinking problem. I guess is the best way to describe it, um, recognizing it and actively dealing with it. Um, so anyway, um, one of the myths is that you you know that that you have to hit bottom, that you have to lose everything. Um, and, you know, one of the mo- greatest innovations in the last 10 to 20 years is motivational interviewing. Really, that's a form of, of therapy that really helps people look at the, um, helping them become motivated to do something about their drinking problem before they hit bottom. You really don't have to lose everything. And there are many, many people um, who deal with their drinking problem or drug addiction, which is um, I'm dealing with in the new book that I'm writing, both alcohol and drug addiction, 
um, you can do something about a problem before it gets really bad. And to be honest with you, it's one of the reasons I decided to tell my own story in Sober for Good, because I'm one of those people who did something about it before losing everything. Well, I think that uh, in my experience, people can decide to change at almost any point. Um, even people who aren't having any major problems at all can suddenly decide, uh, I don't like the idea of being a drinker anymore. And they will decide, I don't want to be a drinker anymore, and they might stop completely. And people might have minor problems, and that would be enough to motivate those people to change. And then more moderate problems will motivate some, and more major problems motivate others. And I think people change at any step down the path. It's my, been my Absolutely. experience. Absolutely. And, you know, one of, one of the, the sad um, aspects of our treatment approaches, the treatment industry that we have for helping people with alcohol and drug addiction is that all of our efforts, um, and, and that's, I know we'll, we'll get to that, but the focus of my new book is on the addiction treatment industry in the United States, but, um, and I do address this somewhat in Sober for Good, is looking, well, a huge focus of Sober for Good is looking at the spectrum of drinking problems, you know, not just severe problems, although many, many people in the book did have severe problems. But, you know, I had people who who recognized they had a drinking problem and labeled themselves as having had a serious problem, um, although you don't have to have a serious problem to recognize that you might be on the road to one to, to do something about it. Um, but, you know, I remember having one woman who never had more than a few drinks at a, a night, but she saw that it was interfering with her relationships with her grown children and decided to quit drinking. Um, and that's the key thing is recognizing, looking for the warning signs. Um, and I have a chapter where you, where people really talk about their their wake up their wake up call signs. You know, the recognizing the things that tip them off that they might have a problem. Um, and that was one of them. You know, was recognizing seeing problems in relationships, recognizing that you know, like they would avoid taking a medication because they, it said, don't drink when you're on this medication or not wanting to go someplace if alcohol wasn't available. Um, those were some of the tip-offs that they had a problem. Um, so it's, it's looking at those connections. Well, I think in my own experience uh, 10, 15 years ago when I was involved in uh, undergoing treatment programs and trying to go to AA and things, you know, people would be telling me, you know, because I, I questioned all kinds of things like, you know, why do you need to have a higher power? Uh, well, maybe it's thinking that you're in conscious contact with God and he's telling you what to do isn't a good idea. You know, and I start questioning these things and people would just be very upset with me and they'd say, you haven't hit bottom yet, you need to go out and drink more and suffer more. And I don't think that was the right approach to take. It's it's very sad, yeah. And, and you know, that's one of the things that Sober for Good addresses is this one-size-fits-all mentality that there's only one way to do it and because it helped me, you know, this approach helped me, therefore it will help you. And when I wrote Sober for Good, although the book is not anti-AA, I found that uh, out of the 222 people I interviewed, 125 of them did overcome their drinking problems with the help of AA. Um, but the other 97 did it in some other way. Um, and that was just kind of how the numbers shook down when I went out and tried to recruit people for the book. Um, there are more people that, that that's just how the numbers came to me. I was going to say there there are there are not more people who recover with AA necessarily than there are um, when when you look at the research. 
there are probably at least as many people who quit drinking on their own um, or without AA as there are people who get help or go to AA. We just don't hear about them. They're not as visible. They don't tend to jump out at you and um, wear it on their sleeve. You know, I often know mm-hmm. celebrities, um, people like, um, even people like George Bush, you know, um, who was president um, when I was out promoting Sober for Good. I often talked about him when I was giving talks because he never identified himself as alcoholic or alcohol dependent, but it was pretty clear that he had had some fairly serious problems with with alcohol abuse. Um, and as far as we know, he never went to AA, never hit bottom, but he recognized that alcohol was causing problems in his life, and he, he decided to quit drinking. But anyway, when I wrote Sober for Good, 9 out of 10, uh, more than 9 out of 10 substance abuse treatment programs in the country were based on the 12 steps of AA. The numbers have gone down somewhat. Um, here we are about 12 years later. Um, and But still, the vast majority of programs incorporate the 12 steps in some fashion and they help many people but they're not for everybody and that's where that mentality comes from that you know you have to have a higher power you have to hit bottom interestingly when you go and look at some of the original teachings of AA and you look at the big book many of those um, some of those dogmatic um, uh, sayings and slogans are nowhere to be found in the original teachings, and actually some of the original teachings are more liberal than what actually goes on in practice and treatment, which is very interesting. Yes. And speaking of those statistics, uh, there's an interesting article that was published in 2009 from the NIAAA, and they put it on the Internet so anyone can find it. It's called Alcoholism Isn't What It Used to Be, and it's published by the NIAAA Spectrum, and it is uh, from the research of the NISARC, the National Epidemiological Survey of Alcohol-Related Conditions. And they found that over a 20-year period, where they studied people with alcohol dependence, that uh, 25% did not recover. Three-quarters did recover. And then out of those who recovered, um, three-quarters of them did it on their own, and uh, only one-quarter used AA or a, a treatment program. Yeah, I'm familiar with, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I've turned to it many times myself. You do have to be careful with some of those, um, looking at some of those numbers, because some of those studies are looking at just one year of recovery. You know, that what's really interesting is when you, now they've continued some of those NISARC studies, and looked at, you know, um, you know the, the longer-term statistics. Um, but nevertheless, the, the points are well taken, that there are many people who do it on their own, and there are, yeah, I mean, the, the, the overall trends are still there. Um, but, but some of those are based on one-year outcome studies, or, you know, looking at people who just had one year of recovery. Um, but, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, when you uh, looked at people... Uh, you said that the largest number that responded did go through AA to do their recovery, but there was also uh, a sizable percentage, not quite half, but uh, a lot of people went other routes. Um, What were some of the other routes? Did they do it on their own? Did they use other groups? Yeah, um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, and you have to remember, I did that research a while ago, and I have Mm -hmm. the new books (laughs) fresher in my (laughs) mind, but as I recall, there were about 25 who did it on their own. Um, and I do think 
by the way, that one of the reasons why um, people who did it um, on their own were less likely to come forward is they don't identify themselves as former alcoholics or alcoholics. Um, and also, I think they're t- they tend to be more likely to want to put it behind them. I remember um, approaching a few people, and their attitude was, I don't want to talk about that anymore, unlike people who go to AA who find that it's helpful to kind of keep rehashing the past. And that's fine. You know, one of the messages of the book is you have to find what works for you. Um, I had, um, I believe, about 50 of the people went to um, non-AA recovery groups. They went to Smart Recovery, which was only three years old at the time. In fact, I made a few exceptions to my three-year. You had to have, I'm sorry, my five-year. You had to have five years of recovery to be part of the book. But Smart Recovery had only been around for three years at the time. Um, So I made some exceptions. And and, um, now Smart Recovery has been around for, what, about 15 years, I guess, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, or longer. Um, but I had Smart Recovery, Women for Sobriety, Secular Organizations for Sobriety. You know, I had people who had done it in many different ways. I had people who had recovered with, with AA who were no longer going. I had people who either just felt no longer felt a need to go, and that's one of the myths, is that if you recover with AA, you have to keep going forever. There are people who just felt they no longer had the need. Um, I had some people who became disenfranchised with AA after having it, it had helped them, but they just felt like, yeah, this ain't working for me anymore. I had people who, interestingly, some of the real interesting people, as I recall, there were about six people who quit drinking on their own. They were um, happily sober. I mean, this wasn't that kind of, I, I don't like this, this term, but I'm going to use it, that concept of dry drunk, you know, you quit drinking, but you're miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they, they did not strike me as being that kind of person at all, but they were happily sober for, for, for a period of time. And, um, but then for some reason they decided they, they wanted to, to go to AA. They felt they needed the support. And that was an interesting discovery. Um, and um, I should back up and let people know that by training, I have a master's degree in nutrition science and worked in obesity treatment early in my career and have written a number of books, Thin for Life and Eating Thin for Life, using the same model where I studied people who had long-term weight loss, maintained weight loss. Um, and I found the same thing that I'm about to say in weight maintainers, and that is that maintenance is not static for many people. Sobriety is not static for many people. People do different things at different points in time to help them maintain their behavior change. Um, so thus the people who you know, were happily sober, having quit on their own, but then decided to go to a recovery group. Um, you know, some people, um, well, I, I know that I've done different things at different points in time to maintain my weight. Um, not that I was never heavy, but I do, I do actively work to maintain my weight. Um, I get sick of my exercise regime after a while and change and do some, change it up. Um, I've done different things at different points in time to maintain my sobriety. Um, and many people, I think, do that. Um, so anyway, it's interesting. Um, you know, it was an interesting discovery. Okay, on that, I'm going to ask you. Uh, did you find people that uh, 
I'm, I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase it, but the people that get into a rut, including a positive rut, I mean, I find for myself when I establish new habits, after I do them for a certain period of time, a month or two, all of a sudden I want to do it that way all the time, and I don't want to change. I mean, I'm I'm dieting right now, so the first like you know two two to three weeks of changing was difficult, and I was tempted all the time to do stuff I used to do. Now I'm in my new habit, and I don't you know it's it's I have a great deal of inertia to continue the new habit, which is actually a positive habit, and I have very little to you know break back and go back to the old one, and I don't want to change things up. So did you find people that like that? That is not something that I looked at. And you have to remember that I ha- I study people with long-term sobriety. So you may be at a different stage with what you're describing than these people. You know, the, I mean, these people had five years of sobriety. The people, well, they had to have had five years of sobriety, but actually what I found was of my group of 222, their average length of sobriety was 13 years. So these people were really way beyond that stage. Um, with my weight maintainers, they even they had to have three years of having kept at least 20 pounds off, but their average weight loss was more like 63 to 64 pounds. Um, they uh, the average length of time that they had kept the weight off. Um, now I'm going to blank. Um, the hazards of having written too many books and too many numbers <laughs> in your mind, but um, the average length of time they had kept the weight off was well it was well beyond three years. Let's say that. Um, so anyway, um, so these are people you know who have maintained their behavior for a long time. So I think they're at a different stage. And again, I think you know different things work for people at different points in time. Usually what happens, I, I, I don't think that necessarily weight and, and I, although there are similarities and that's part of what interested me in, um, you know, moving from weight loss into addiction, I, I think there are many differences too, you know, in, in what it takes to change mm-hmm, the behavior. Mm-hmm. Part of it is obviously you can give up the substance with, with food, with drug and, drugs and alcohol, but you can't give it up with food. Um, so, um, so I think there, you know, that's obviously one key difference. But no, it's not something that I looked at. Yeah, I'm just interested. I found the same thing with, uh, well, with my drinking habits, which have been for like the last nine years now, at least a minimum of five days of absence a week, five to six days of absence a week. You know, just uh, drinking one to two nights. And you know, once I got into that new pattern, it took a long time to get into. But I, I tend to get a lot of inertia and not want to slip out of it. Well, I'm not going to continue that forever. Well, wait a ever. minute. Maybe what you're mm-hmm. describing, maybe I wouldn't use the same word. Maybe I wouldn't use inertia. Maybe I would use the word, um, uh, uh, well, um, I'm trying to think. Um, there's a psychologist by the name of Dan Kirschenbaum, who's a weight obesity expert. And he actually thinks that for people to lose weight and keep it off, and he's actually one of them, you have to have some obsessiveness. And I suppose there's an element of that, especially for people who were seriously overweight, which most of the people I studied were. I mean, these weren't, you know, people losing, you know, like, you know, 
five or ten pounds. These were people with serious weight to lose. Um, and to because there's no question that it's hard to lose weight and keep it off in this society, and it's very difficult if you had um, a, sub, a true substance use disorder that it's very difficult to maintain sobriety. That um, at least in the beginning, an element of obsessiveness is involved, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and maybe, um, but it's a healthy obsessiveness and <laughs> and or persistence. One of um, Dan Kirschenbaum's books, which I think is one of the worst titles in the world because it doesn't entice people to buy your book, is weight loss through persistence. You know, everybody in our society wants to feel that you want quick and easy, quick and easy. So you don't title entitle your you don't use that as a title for your book, but that's really what we're talking about here. And maybe you're getting at one of the if probably the most striking common thread that I found amongst these people who maintain sobriety and maintain weight loss in many different ways is commitment. Um a commitment to changing their behavior. Um you know, and I basically um, that they once they made up their minds, they they held hard and fast to that. Um, and interestingly, I heard very little of this one day at a time philosophy, which mm-hmm. I do think can be very helpful to people in early recovery. There's no question about that. And again, I was talking mm-hmm. to people with long term sobriety. But a lot of them told me that a critical turning point for them was when they accepted the fact that they couldn't go back to their old ways, whether it was drinking or using whatever, whenever, or eating whatever, whenever. It was that they really, truly accepted that they could never drink again. You know, for me, it was realizing that I could not be a moderate drinker, um, you know, that that, that that just didn't work for me. And I heard that over and over again from people. Or for the few moderate drinkers that I had, it was making a commitment to using the controls that they needed to use to be moderate drinkers, um, you know, to use the behavioral strategies that work to put moderate drinking into place. Um, but making some sort of commitment to that lifestyle change that puts that in place. So I don't know if that gets at maybe answering part of what you're asking. Um, I think commitment. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's – well, I think what I'm asking is slightly different than that because you were talking about you getting bored with your exercise routine and you need to change it up. And for me, Uh it's like when I'm buying food – or when I'm going to go eat, I don't want to think about it. I want to do the same thing every uh-huh, time. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. I don't want to think about what I'm going to buy. I want to go and buy the same thing every time or just have a very limited, you know, routine that I cycle through. And, you know, before it would be like, you know, the the cheeseburger with the pound of fries on the side and the pork fried right, rice right. with the fried half-fried chicken. And now it's the shrimp and tofu with white rice instead. And, you know, it's about half the calories. But I'm I'm getting like the same two or three dishes every night when I go you know, my favorite Chinese guys to eat. And, you know, it's just that they're good ones instead of bad ones now. Well, uh, well there is some evidence that limiting choices is helpful for weight loss um, and weight maintenance, that, it, you know, it's this constant bombardment with so many choices that we have around us. Um, so, you know, there, there, there is some evidence supporting that. Um, but, 
but um you know also you have to be careful about the boredom factor <laughs> you know that that you know like people could do anything for a period of time but eventually if you get sick of it you're not going to stick with it so you have to be careful with that too yeah just for me i think i like to do the same thing i see i want to concentrate my mental energy on doing other things so i don't want to think about what i want to eat so i'll either yeah, get in a, yeah well that's I'll, fine that's fine yeah i'll get in a rut of eating again it's badly. what works for you yeah, I can get in a rut of eating very badly or eating very well. But once I've got yeah. either rut established, I tend to stick with it and not change up. Hello? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm here. Oh, okay. I suddenly got... Yeah, I, yeah no, I just I just didn't have anything more to say about it. No, my background noise would kind of disappear too. So oh, okay. Like we were cut off. Yeah, um, I'm let's, here. Let's look at some more of the chapters that you wrote in this book. Um now, you talk about the friends and family, advice to friends and family of how they can help people that want to make a positive change in their habits. So what did you find out about that? Well, you know, one of the um, myths is that friends and family can't do much to help somebody who's not ready to change. Um, and I have seen that myth promulgated over and over again in doing the research for my new book about um, rehab um, because there's such an emphasis on Al-Anon, um, which basically teaches people, you know, to take care of themselves, but you can't change the person with the addiction, which is just not true. Um, it's you know, and one of the things that's very been very disturbing to me, um, and I do talk about this some in Sober for Good, but I'll talk about it more in the new book, is that um, there's a huge amount of support for a research um, for for a, a, an approach called CRAFT. Um, now, don't ask me what it stands for. Community. Uh, do you know what it stands for? Community and family C R A F T. It's an acronym, but anyway, developed by Dr. Family Robert therapy. Myers. Mm-hmm. Pardon? Community okay. reinforcement and family therapy, I believe it Thank is. Thank you. Okay, and I'm so used to calling it craft and forget what it stands for. But anyway, craft um, teaches people, um, and there's a book called Get Your Loved One Sober, um, which I wrote an endorsement for by Dr. Myers and Brenda Wolf. And um, it teaches people strategies that they can use that have been shown in research studies um, over and over again that are likely to get people to seek help, to get people into treatment if they need treatment. Um, and there are specific things that you can do to um, make a difference, communication strategies. Um, and so, you know, that was one of the messages I wanted to get across in that chapter. And, you know, but... One of the biggest things that I do in all of my books is not just talk about research, but people connect through the stories. What I do is tell people stories and illustrate the points that I'm trying to make through stories of real people who have been there. And that story, I mean, I'll, I'll you know, I haven't thought about this story in years, but that story, her name was, um, well, you know, I better not say it because I don't know if I'm remembering her real name or the name that I used in the book. Um, but it's funny the things that you remember. But anyway, um, her story was extremely moving because she was um, a very severe, um, well, I'll use the term alcoholic. We're getting rid of the term alcohol dependent. But anyway, we're not sure exactly where we're going with the terminology. But anyway, 
very severe alcohol addiction, and she woke up one morning with her, a note pinned to her from her ch- on her on her blouse from her child. She had passed out. And her child wrote a note saying, Mom, please don't do this anymore. Um, you know, we love you. I can't remember exactly what the words were. But, you know, as a mother, that was extremely moving and prof- profound to me. Um, and I'll never forget her story. And um, But, you know, talking, uh, the chapter talks about ways and examples and shares stories of people, things that helped and didn't help on um, on the part of family members um, en route to getting sober. Um, so I think that's really important to address. And then the book is also filled with resources and tips, and, and, and the new one will be too with, you know, things that you can ask about um, looking for quality treatment. Um, and and that, that book is the same with going out and finding, you know, more than 100 people who have been through rehab and interviewing staff members, and um, it's just been fascinating. It's been well over four years that I've been looking at, at that subject, um, which you know, I really didn't look at treatment in Sober for Good. I looked at recovery, recovery programs, um, you know, for people who are unfamiliar with um, in Sober for Good. What I did was I profiled people um, who recovered with the different kinds of recovery programs, Smart Recovery, Women for Sobriety, talk about the history of those programs, moderation management, um, and so people can learn about those programs and how they're different and actually read a story of a person who used each one of those approaches. Um, and then there is a chapter on moderate drinking and the pros and the cons and who's more um, um, more likely to succeed with that and the best guidance for trying that approach. Um, so that's that's what it's all about. Okay, we've got about two or two minutes or so to finish up. Our next caller is on the line waiting. I'm going to bring him on when we finish up, but we got about two more minutes. So um, what would you like to finish up the last two minutes with? Anything in particular? Well, um, I, you know, certainly, you know, anybody who's struggling with a drinking problem, I one thing that I would say is never give up. I mean, I talked with, I've talked with, so many people, hundreds of them now, who struggled repeatedly and have been, you know, who've struggled for years, who've been in and out of treatment programs, who now have succeeded. Um, if one approach doesn't work, try another. Um, you know, don't don't let people tell you that there's only one way to do this. Um, you know, that there there are many, many, many different ways to overcome substance abuse problems. Um, and um, and it doesn't have to be with treatment. It doesn't have to be with rehab. Um, the book has guidelines for, um, I think, that one of the underutilized routes to recovery is individual therapy. That is largely how I did it, by finding a, tre- a professional. Um, you need to find somebody with expertise in that area because you can't assume that all therapists have that expertise, but I give some guidelines in Sober for Good for finding um, a mental health professional who has expertise in that area. Um, And a lot of this is going to be updated in the new book. And I hope to do a revised edition of Sober for Good sometime in the near future. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest tonight. And Fletcher, the book is called Sober for Good. It's available on Amazon. The new book is not out yet. I don't think there's a title for it yet, is there? We're No, we're not sure exactly what it's going to be yet, but I'm so glad we finally connected, Ken. 
Oh, well, so am I, and thank you for coming on tonight. I'm going to put you on hold, and I'm going to bring our next guest on right now. Okay. Hello, Scott. Are you there? I'm there, Ken. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Excellent. Okay, this is uh, Scott Elting. He uh, represents Drager Diagnostics, which makes a breathalyzer ignition interlock device, and he's going to come on here tonight and tell us about what the device is, how it's used, why it's used, how it works. Um, so welcome to the show, and tell us a little bit about the Ignition Interlock device. All right, Ken. I appreciate it. Um, the Ignition Interlock device is an instrument the, that came into being quite a number of years ago with the original idea of preventing a vehicle from starting if it detected uh, alcohol on someone's breath. Uh, and and that was the very basic general premise of an, of an ignition interlock in the beginning. Um, over the years, uh, the technology has gotten better. The very first systems uh, weren't alcohol-specific. Um, they only tested a person for initial test before they had to start their, before they wanted to start their car. Uh, over the years, the technology's gotten better. Uh, m almost all interlocks that are installed for uh, offender markets are alcohol-specific. Technology that's commonly used for that is fuel cell. Mm -hmm. And as as programs have developed, the devices have developed. Most of the devices that are on the market today are extremely reliable, extremely accurate instruments that are capable of alcohol-specific detection. And as a lot of other things have progressed during the computer age, ignition interlocks have as well, uh, by adding things like rolling retests, meaning the device randomly test, tests the driver once the vehicle gets started, uh, much more complicated uh, systems for detecting that the vehicle started uh, and that the vehicle stopped. Uh, much more robust systems for detecting uh, if someone tries to tamper with the system, uh, mm -hmm. like starting the vehicle without taking a test or trying to provide a sample that's not a human sample, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so technology-wise, the devices have really, really progressed over the years, and they really do a good job of uh, preventing someone from starting their vehicle if they have alcohol in their breath. Are there any things that still might possibly give a false positive uh, on one of these tests? Um, <clears throat> you know, the device, the, the key, no, the key thing here in this question, and, and this is a common question that I get, um, and the tricky part is, is that a breath and analyzing system is measuring breath. So uh, there are ways to get a positive test if you haven't been if you're not drunk. Um, and one of those ways is commonly referred to as mouth alcohol. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you rinse with mouthwash and then you blow into a breath detection device, it's going to detect that alcohol. Um, now, the, the, the kicker there is that it's going to see a very high level of alcohol, and it's also going to see, uh, when it asks again, that the, that the alcohol is eliminating extremely fast which would not be the case if you have actually alcohol in your blood. 
So most ignition interlock programs are designed with that in mind, such that if you have a, a, a failed test, uh, it, they look at the next test and determine the two fail points to determine, you know, is that actually blood alcohol or is that just a mouth alcohol reading? And this is true for any breath analyzing device. Uh, they 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 they're going to detect any alcohol that comes out in your breath. Okay. On this same topic, there's a lot of myths rolling around out there about how to beat the breathalyzer test and chewing up a packet of mustard and putting a penny in your mouth and all of these. And uh, let me ask you, uh, do any of these things work? To my knowledge, they don't. Um, you know, the device, like I said, it's very – It's uh, if you have alcohol in your system – it is very, very difficult to to get it out of your breath. Uh, if you actually have alcohol in your blood, um, fooling an instrument that's as sensitive as these ignition interlock systems are is next to impossible. And one of the reasons for that is, especially when you look at offender programs in the U.S., um, almost every state or actually every state, the, <clears throat> the legal drinking limit is 0.08. Um, mm -hmm. But the average... A uh, fail point for ignition interlock systems, the average is about 0 0.025. Mm -hmm. So you have to uh, eliminate essentially all of the alcohol out of your breath in order for the device not to detect it. And that's because most ignition interlock uh, offender programs are set for complete abstinence of drinking. Um, if you're on an ignition interlock program in most states, they do not want you to consume alcohol at all, ever while you're on the program. So that's why the ignition interlocks are set so much lower. So it's very difficult. Uh, I don't know of any way that you can actually get rid of alcohol that's in your blood but and, and still blow into an inter ignition interlock device and pass. Yeah, I did a lot of research on this because somebody was asking me this question, and I want to give them a good answer. The only thing I could find was that hyperventilation can drop you about 30% uh, of your measured BAC and holding your breath will also will increase your BAC uh, measured level on a breathalyzer, but that's only about thirty percent drop, so it's kind of small. Yes, I mean there is there is a, uh, a, a an idea of ignition interlocks are designed to to get the most accurate measurement of someone's blood alcohol concentration. They need to get what's referred to as a deep lung breath sample. Mm -hmm. And that's why NHTSA has set the volume, the standard volume, to 1.5 liters of breath. Um, and the purpose of that is to make someone, someone that's providing a test, blow and blow and blow and blow and blow until they get to the, the very bottom of their lung capacity. And then they sample there. Uh, and that way you get a very accurate sample. Now, the further away from from the deep lung sample that you get, you do lose some – it's not as much accuracy. You lose a little bit of resolution. Uh, you still are probably going to get a very similar reading. I don't know if 30% would be an accurate number, but but, you're not, but the resolution of your of your reading is going to be off a little bit, uh, likely. Just on that point, do, do heavy smokers or other people with lung problems have difficulty with these uh, ignition airlocks? Well, now, um, that's, a, that's a good question. A lot of uh, of our – Customers that come in to get these devices installed uh, that smoke, we we caution them. 
to be careful with cigarette smoke. And this isn't because cigarette smoke has an effect on the readings. It really is because it has an effect on the instrument. It damage it can damage the sensing uh, equipment in the uh, in the instrument if cigarette smoke is continuously blown through it. And what it does is it just shortens the life of the sensor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in that regard, it does affect smokers a little bit because a lot of smokers, I think, are in the habit of smoking in their vehicles, which is still fine. They can still smoke in their vehicles if they have an ignition and airlock, but they have to make sure that they ventilate the smoke out of the vehicle, which means if you live in a really cold climate, you're going to be driving around with the window cracked trying to get that smoke out of the vehicle. And then they also have to make sure that they don't have any smoke in their in their lungs when they're blowing through the device, which just simply takes a couple of, of good breaths before they blow into the device, and then they'll be fine. Um, the part two of your question is another is another thing that we see pretty commonly, and that are pe- that are is people that have issues with lungs, um, maybe lung some sort of lung disease, or or uh, they've had they've lost a lung, or the elderly, uh, various different situations require that that the interlock devices be adjusted. As I mentioned before, NHTSA set the standard at 1.5 liters, which is what they believe is the average deep lung sample. Now, there are some people that are more than that, and then, of course, there are some people, for the reasons I just mentioned, that are less than that. And nearly every state has a process uh, for uh, for these people so that the, the volume of the device can be reduced uh, so that they can eat, you know, so they can provide what is their own deep lung sample, which might be 1,200 milliliters, or it might be uh, one liter instead of one and a half liters. Uh, and typically, those people will go to a, go to their doctor and find out what their lung capacity is, uh, and then get the get an order to have the level, the breast sample volume reduced. Okay. Do you have an idea offhand uh, how many states in the U.S. Are mandating these uh, interlocks for people with uh, DUIs? Um, there's somewhere. Almost all of the states have a law, uh, but there's only about 40 or 44 states that have laws that are really uh, getting ignition interlocks installed. Um, a lot of states that 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 don't have the solid laws. They might have a loophole in, in their law somewhere that's, that, say, in a judicial state, a common thing that we see or we used to see in older laws uh, would be that it says the judge may order an, an ignition interlock. It doesn't say that they shall order an ignition interlock. So then in those cases, we see a lot lower instances of ignition interlocks. Um, this is something that uh, that MAD works on a lot um, and really tries to help states craft laws that get people that, that need to have a device on the device. Do you see uh, people uh, choosing to get this for themselves that are not mandated by courts? Yes, Ken, we do see that. Um, we, we at Drager, we've never really marketed to that uh, sort of uh, consumer market piece, if you will. Uh, and we don't, we don't, we haven't marketed our ignition interlock systems to that market, but we do get a lot of calls. Uh, we get a lot of people that that just call us up out of the blue that want to buy one. They want to put it on their mom's car, their kid's car, their own car. Um, it's it's actually uh, a lot, quite a bit, quite more than than what we would have expected. And we also see a lot of 
offenders that have to have the device put on for a period of time could be six months up to, in some states, we see customers as long as five or ten years on ignition interlocks. And um, there are uh, a good chunk of those clients that decide after they've had it uh, that they want to continue having it. And I think the, those clients that I've spoken to personally that have made that decision, uh, I can remember a conversation with a specific gentleman a number of years ago, and he, had, when he came to, to us to get the device installed, he, he really felt like he had a real drinking problem, uh, and he was just out of control, and he was struggling at work and in his family and all the typical bad things that can happen. And over the course of about two and a half years that he had the ignition interlock system on, he really felt like this was a was a i guess a crutch to really help him uh get over get over the hump i mean he was doing all the other things that your previous caller was was mentioning i mean he was going to aa and he was really involved and really doing all the things that you need to do but he really felt like the ignition interlock system really was a was a crutch it really helped him get over the hump and then uh so when he was done with his mandatory time he kept it on and uh, as far as I know, to this day, he still has it, and that's been quite a while. So, yeah, I've had a couple people in our support group uh, that have said, you know, if they are, if they ever buy a car, they're never going to get a car unless they have the ignition interlock on it because they don't want it, you know, even take a chance that they might possibly, you know, black out and drive drunk or something. They don't want to even have that possibility open to them. Correct. Yes. So we do see that. Um, we do we do see that quite a bit. And and actually, um, a lot of times it's for parents for their kids going off to college and different things like that as well. So people that don't even think that they necessarily have a problem, they just want to put it on there purely as a prevention tool, just a, just a safeguard. So what do you think of the idea of making the ignition interlock a standard safety device like a seatbelt uh, that has to be on every car? Well, you know, I think that that that's a, that's a pretty loaded question, um, and it's a little difficult to answer. I, I think that uh, there are some that really feel like this would be a be somehow be an advantage. I think that ignition interlock technology has to progress quite a bit before uh, the general public. 100% of the people buying new cars would accept would accept it. I think it has to be uh, more invisible before you'll start to see it on on cars, uh, on all cars. Um, I certainly think anything that improves the safety of the general public is is something that we should consider. Um, and but I just don't know how soon ignition interlock technology will be far enough along that it can be applied to every car seamlessly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, pe- people that some people are just just refuse to have one of these things and, and blow into it and 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 those sorts of things. So, yeah, you see, I don't drive, so uh, from my point of view, I'd like to see everybody out there that's driving have one on there, so I can be safer when I'm walking down the street being a pedestrian. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it definitely would be. Anything that makes everybody safer is a great deal in my book. Well, I agree very much. Um, well, I think I'm going to 
I'm going to invite you to uh, tell me what you what else you want to tell me about this. We might close the show a little early because I'm running out of questions. But uh, okay. feel free to uh, give me your last words or to talk as much as you want. Okay. I, I really don't have a whole lot more to say, Ken. I think you've asked um, a lot of the, the key questions, the, the common questions uh, that I hear um, oftentimes from people that are that are being inquisitive about ignition interlocks. Um, one thing that uh, uh, that I've noticed uh, that's a trend uh, over the last few years is that a lot of states, as as I spoke in the in the beginning, ignition interlocks were originally uh, a prevention concept, and over the years they have gone uh, to more to not only not only a preventative device but also a reporting device, and almost every state. Uh, where we operate, they use this massive amount of data that all these ignition interlocks generate, and they they use it to measure people's performance on on how they're doing with their with their improving their situation. And uh, this is something. This is a trend that's happening, not just in the U.S. It's happening in Europe and all sorts, you know, across the globe. Places that have mandatory fender type markets. They're really looking at this ignition interlock data to determine uh, what people are doing out when they're out and about as part of probation programs, as part of pretrial release programs, parole programs. They're 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 connecting this interlock data to to uh, the rest of their of their uh, preventative programs, and it's it's kind of an interesting trend, uh, and it makes to where the ignition interlock. The real product of an ignition interlock manufacturer today, uh, like Draeger, is is the data that we provide to the to the agencies that are that are looking at the data. That's that's really uh, where the real product is uh, that we produce, and I think a lot of uh, people don't realize that. Okay, I'd like to thank you very much, Scott Elting, for being our guest on the show tonight. It's my pleasure. And everyone, come on back next week. We're going to have two shows. We're going to have one on Wednesday. We're going to be talking to Dr. Susan Collins from University of Seattle, who is studying wet housing and the fact that if you let alcoholics, homeless alcoholics, drink in their wet housing, they drink far less than they do when they live on the streets. And then on Thursday, we're going to have Stanton Peel, back. He's going to do a year-end summing up with us, and uh, next year we're going to switch to a less intense uh, format, and so everyone look forward to the shows next week, and thank you everyone, and good night. <laughs>